Amen. Well, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. We started last week, and we'll be in for a couple more weeks. If you have a ribbon, it'd be a good place to park a ribbon for the next 31 weeks or so. So, but we started Daniel last week. It's uh, a, a book that is going to be great to walk through. It's a book that many of us are familiar with. It's got a couple uh, very familiar stories that we have learned as, as children. Daniel in the lion's den. And, of course, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace that we'll get to in a little while. And we'll be introduced to these uh, men this morning. And uh, my hope is as we go through Daniel that we will encounter these stories we, we will encounter Daniel itself and even the visions uh, starting in chapter 7. And we'll encounter these in a, uh, in a new and fresh way. Not new because God's Word is new. New because hopefully you have different eyes than you had as a child. That you have different eyes and ears for the gospel. Even that you had uh, 10 years ago or a few years ago as we desire to see um, Christ in the pages of Daniel. He said, well, Christ wasn't born until Matthew. Well, Christ is pre, is, uh, pre, uh, preeminent. Christ is eternal. Christ has always been in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is ultimately about Christ. As we see this scarlet thread that runs through all 66 books of the Bible, uh, not excluding Daniel. And so ultimately we're going to see Christ in Daniel. And we'll see glimpses even this morning as we saw glimpses last week. And so uh, let's just read the first couple of verses that we read last week. And then we'll, um, uh, heck, let's just go ahead and read our text this morning. So we'll go from Daniel 1, uh, 1 through verse 7. So here we go. Daniel 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, or Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And this is kind of where we stopped last week as we kind of set up Daniel, as we set up where they were in Israel's history and, and Judah's history, as we see that Israel has already has been destroyed about 136 or so years before this, the northern kingdom. And now we see the Judah here in the southern kingdom, that God is bringing his wrath against sin. He's bringing his wrath against uh, the sin of Israel, the sin of his people, the sin of the Hebrews. And uh, we see them bringing this, uh, bringing his wrath against sin that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 39. Let's go ahead and turn there real quick as we transition from verse 2 to verse 3. Go to Isaiah chapter 39. It may have been in 2 Kings last week looking at this prophecy. But go to Isaiah this week, Isaiah chapter 39, verse 6 and 7, to see this is not uh, something that was unexpected. This is actually something that was uh, quite expected because God said it through his prophet Isaiah to the king Hezekiah. So we'll uh, start there in verse 5, Isaiah chapter 39. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house 
and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And this is what we saw last week as he carried the treasures uh, and the treasures even that you see in verse uh, in the beginning of chapter 39 there. They've carried those away. Nothing shall be left. And then in verse 7, And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place and the palace of the king of Babylon. So we see this prophesied from Isaiah uh, through the Lord uh, so many years ago. Actually, five generations separated Hezekiah to Jehoiakim now. And it is believed that these men that we're about to meet are from the lineage of Hezekiah. And thus the word of the Lord is fulfilled that those from his house are carried away to Babylon. So we'll see here in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to understand the king's palace and to teach them the literature of the language of the Chaldeans or Chaldeans, if you will. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach and Azariah, he called Abednego. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to gather around your word. We thank you for Daniel chapter 1. And we thank you uh, that you will speak to us this morning. We pray that you do through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we can be here today. And thank you for, uh, for all that you have done for your people. So help us now to see, Lord, and to hear by the power of your spirit in christ's name we do pray amen so we see here that this prophecy is continuing to be fulfilled last week it was that they would be taken to exile and we see the exile begins and as we'll be reminded this morning there's there's three waves of the exile if you will and so what we're seeing is the first wave jehoiakim is the first king uh that uh, is besieged and as we see that it is the lord who was uh who was who was in that it was the lord who gave jehoiakim up to nebuchadnezzar to babylon and so uh, last week we saw the things of of the palace, the things of Jerusalem, the things of the temple were brought to Babylon. But now we see the people, and it wasn't all the people yet. All the people didn't come in this first wave. But this first wave, some of the people were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon in exile. And so this is this first wave that we see as uh, as Nebuchadnezzar commands them to bring some. And so the question is, who does he bring? He goes and he gets some of the royal family, some of the nobility, uh, these who are from the lineage of Hezekiah, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There in verse 3. And so when Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, he brought some of them. And he brought a very specific kind of individual. It says he brought of this both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. And, and then we're going to see what he's going to do with these individuals. 
So they went and they took the best of the best. They took the best youth they could find. And this was not uh, a unique strategy of Nebuchadnezzar. This was a strategy that, that kingdoms used as they took over cities, they took over other kingdoms, as they took over nations, that they would exile the youngest, they would exile the, the best, the brightest, and then they would go in and conquer the rest. And it was a way that they would, uh, they would decimate the surrounding neighbors and nations. And so this is a strategy that was used, especially during this time of the ancient Near East. But here is the comforting thing to see that it was not Nebuchadnezzar who was in control. It was not, uh, it was not Babylon who was in control. It was the Lord who was in control that we saw clearly last week. This whole thing only happened because the Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. Over into his hand, we see there in verse 2. And so the whole thing, God is in control of the whole thing. The Lord is behind because one, he is bringing, he is pouring out his wrath against uh, Judah, but also he's up to something. He's up to something incredible. And this is what we're going to see unfold in the book of Daniel. It is not Nebuchadnezzar who was in control. The Lord established who he desired to be in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. It is, it is God who established that. It wasn't Ashpenaz who went and decided. It was ultimately the Lord who led him to take up Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and those others who would come. And so these young people come into the king's palace, and Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's the master uh, strategist behind this, but we know it is not him ultimately. And it's interesting, just a, a quick contrast, to see who Nebuchadnezzar wants, to see who even the world wants and who, uh, who the enemy wants. He's looking for the brightest and best. He's, he's looking for these young people who are intelligent, who are savvy, who are, uh, who, have, who are skilled, who have all kind of skill sets probably, and they're competent, that they could stand in his palace. But when you contrast that even to who the Lord looks for today, it is not the same list. The Lord looks for those who are lowly, who are humble, who are unassuming, who are weak. And so again, it shows the power of the Lord. But these boys here, and that's what they are, it says youths. And the word there for youths actually means a young boy. So we... We believe that Daniel is about 14 or 15 years old and that there's no reason to assume that uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were any different. So these young boys, these, these children, if you will, 14 to 15-year-olds. Now, I didn't confirm these are parents, but I believe that this is roughly Jonathan, Grant, and uh, Brady, their age. Is that, is that right, parents? 14 to 15, Jonathan, is that you? So, Jonathan, this is you right here, okay? You were snatched up. Uh, so this is that age group of, of kids who were taken from exile, who were brought into the king's court. And so these, it was these young men that the Lord allowed to be taken into exile, taken into the king's court, taken into Babylon, and the Lord is going to use in some incredible ways. And, and this, is, this is impressive, right, for these young men to, to, to fit this description, for these 14 and 15-year-olds to be found without blemish. It is, it is incredible to see these young men be of good appearance and skillful, not just in some wisdom, but it says in all wisdom, to be endowed with knowledge, to have understanding. No offense, 14 and 15-year-old boys. Do you know many 14 and 15-year-old boys who are full of understanding and wisdom? The answer is no. I don't. I used to be one. There was no wisdom. There was little understanding. In order for them to stand in the king's palace, 
to teach. And so it is, uh, it is, it is interesting, this group of young men that the Lord is, is calling up to be in the king's palace. Now, surely we could say that this is, this is to be expected because these were, were young Hebrew boys and they were trained. And, and young Hebrew uh, boys and, even, and, and young women, uh, they were trained from a young age. We can talk about the Shema. We can talk about how it was, uh, it was commanded of God's people to teach their kids from a young age how to walk in the ways of the Lord, how to look to the Lord in faith and to trust the Lord and to know His law and to meditate on His law and to live according to His law. We, we understand that. But there's also an element here that these are the brightest that they could find in Israel. They, they went to and found these young, noble, royal men who had, had these ways about them. And they were the, but it's also not, it's not fair just to say that all the youths were like that because ultimately we're going to see in contrast here in Daniel chapter 1 as we continue that it's just these four. Not all of the Hebrew boys stand as we're going to see against the king. Not all of them are going to reject what needs to be rejected. But these four specifically, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah are the ones who stand and trust the Lord and look to the Lord in the midst of difficult times. And it's just a good reminder for us as we think about youth, as we think about our 14 and 15 year olds, we think about all of those of different ages, that God does not wait to use people until a certain age or stage of life. God uses people of all walks of life, of all ages of life. Go with me to two passages, one to First Timothy. We're just going to springboard for a few moments if you will uh, allow me to do so. 1 Timothy chapter 4, a passage we go to often, a passage that God uh, was probably the, uh, my life verse. I don't know if you were one of those who had a life verse or life passage uh, growing up, but it was something the Lord used clearly in my life. 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 12, where it says, Let no one despise you because uh, of, for your youth, but set, a belie- but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Of course, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. And Timothy, likely not 14 or 15 years old, but he was young. And some would say maybe too young to be in the role that he was in. And Paul is encouraging him, don't let someone look down on you because you were young, because God is going to use you in an incredible way. And sometimes I believe in the church, we have this mentality that until I, until I become a certain age or a certain stage of life, until I graduate high school, school or until I get married or until something happens you know I really can't be used in the kingdom of God and we're going to see God use these four men in incredible ways another passage that I is dear to my heart is Job uh, Job chapter 32 if I could find Job 32 there you are right before the book of Psalms Job chapter 32 this gentleman named Elihu, one of the friends of Job, and he gets a little snarky. We won't spend all the time in Job 32. We'll just read uh, this verse. Not truly snarky, but he is, of course, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit here as we see this. And Job's friends are saying all these things. And finally, Elihu just kind of sits and waits. And he says this in Job chapter 32. He says, 
I am young in years. This is verse 6. I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and let many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. And so what we see, what we're reminded of, is not about if you're talented. It's not about if you're skilled. It's not about a certain age. Ultimately, what, brings, what, what, what makes us usable for the kingdom of God is the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us. So whether it's Timothy, whether it's Daniel, whether it's uh, these, these three partners, whether it's Elihu, whoever it is, God is looking for those who will walk in the Spirit. And those who are His are full of the Spirit. And they walk in that Spirit. And that is what makes us useful and usable for the kingdom of God is the Spirit of God. It just reminds us, God does all of it. God calls us and equips us and He empowers us. We want to see this in Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. And so, uh, Ashpenaz, he brings these four men to the king's court for, the, for their service. He, he brings them, he chooses them. I don't know exactly who all, how many he brings, but he at least brings these four that we've described thoroughly. So what is Nebuchadnezzar's plan? What does he want to do with these youths who are found to be so intelligent and skilled and understanding? His plan is to assimilate and dissipate so that he could decimate. I'm not trying to just be preacher. That's just what his plan was. He wants to assimilate these youths. He wants to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture so that he could ultimately uh, dissipate the people of God that would decimate this kingdom that he is against because Nebuchadnezzar is an enemy of the nation of God. He wants to assimilate these young men into Babylonian culture that we're going to see this morning. He desires to conquer and take over the remaining population of Judah. And he desires to wipe out Israel, for he is an enemy of God's people. So his desire is to ultimately assimilate these young men to accomplish his goals of the destruction of Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar's plan to defeat Israel began with assimilation. And we can say the same is true of the tactics of our enemy today. The great deceiver desires that we would be assimilated into the culture around us. That we would think like, talk like, look like, spend like, in so many other ways, be like the world that is that we find ourselves in. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. And that's, he, he had exactly that. He had strategy. He had tactics to accomplish his mission. So four tactics, if you will, this morning uh, for, him to, uh, to, for him to accomplish his mission, to destroy Israel. The first tactic is this, was separation. The first step in their assimilation was separation. Nebuchadnezzar had a number of people from Judah removed from the home and brought to Israel. We spent a lot of time in, uh, brought to Babylon. We spent a lot of time in this last week, this exile. And this was the first wave. So his first tactic is to separate these young people from their homeland, from their country, from their kingdom, from their nation, from their people, from their parents, from their, their houses of worship, from the nation of God. Our Modern context is U.S. citizens today uh, makes cultural separation somewhat difficult to understand. We don't have quite the cultural um, 
foundation as pretty much every other nation in the world, as, as we used to be called, a melting pot here in America. But for the Hebrews, uh, their culture was their own. It was unique to them. It was, they were not a melting pot of other nations. And when they began to become a melting pot, that is when the wrath of God was poured out. More than most nations, more than maybe any other nation that's ever existed. They were isolated from the rest of the world. That was their desire. They were called to be set apart. They were called to be different. They were called not to, there was laws against, there was punishment against, there was wrath against being like the world. So for them to be a part of Babylonian culture was in itself um, tantamount to sin. And so this was the first tactic of Nebuchadnezzar was to separate them. His first step in their assimilation was separation. To belong to Israel was to belong to God's people. Now, don't mishear me. I fully believe and love Romans 9, 6. This says not all those who belong to Israel are Israel. We get that. We know ultimately this is a picture of God's people, those who have faith in the Lord, those who are truly His. But here in the Old Testament, to belong to Israel was to belong to God's people from at least this perception. But these boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they did not look to Judah as their hope. They did not look to their identity as their hope. As we're going to see in the coming chapters, they looked to the Lord for their hope. They looked to Yahweh for their strength for their, for their salvation as their redeemer, as their only hope, they look to not their nation, not to their homeland, but to the Lord. And we too are living in a place that is not our home. We too are um, facing separation. Go with me to John chapter 18 real quick. John 18 verse 36, I believe it is. Jesus is speaking of his kingdom. In John 18, 36, Jesus says this. He answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. We talked about that last week as exiles, as those who we know that this is ultimately not our home. Now, this does not make us a victim. It does not make us fearful. And it does not even cause us to be disengaged, as we're going to see later on, from this world. But it is a reminder that our kingdom is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the U.S. or whatever country you hail from or will end up at some point in your life. Our kingdom is the kingdom of God. And we cannot be separated from the kingdom of God if we are his people. So the first step in their assimilation was separation. The second step in their assimilation was to be reconditioned. Was to be reconditioned. Reconditioning is the process of manipulating the human mind to accept change. To accept change. To have a new reality. Nebuchadnezzar wanted these three these youths, these four youths specifically, but all the youth that they brought in to accept their new life in Babylon. So he ordered everything for them to be taught, to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, hoping that they would abandon their former life and their former culture and call Babylon home. 
And as they grew and matured, that they, that they would lead in that, to say, this is our new home. This is our new place to be reconditioned. His second step in their assimilation was to be reconditioned. And what these boys did, they did just that. They gained wisdom and understanding, not just a little bit, but more than everyone else. And you can look in verses 19 and 20. We'll just a little preview there. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, And the king spoke with them, and this is at the end of their time, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king about which the king inquired him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. So they learned. They learned the ways of Babylon. They learned the language. They learned the culture. And they weren't reconditioned, but they learned the literature. They learned the language. They learned what they were set out to be taught. And so we see that they stayed faithful to the Lord. Even in the separation, as we said earlier, Daniel specifically, we know, did not, uh, n- never returned. We know that he, that he lived out his days, and we know he lived out his days, and God used him in incredible ways in Babylon. And we'll discover that as you go through Daniel. So they did not reject, ultimately, separation. They didn't reject this reconditioning. They learned and learned more than all of, their, um, all of those who were in exile with them. As believers today, we should not be afraid to be successful in the world in which God has placed us. Uh, we do so. We become successful like uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. We become successful by learning the literature and language of the world around us, but not at the expense of remaining faithful to, to the Lord. Jesus said that if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul, what have you gained? And so as believers... Uh, we can be successful in this world. We can be successful in the, the context which God has placed us, but not at the sake of being unfaithful to the Lord. In fact, God is honored whenever His children, God is honored whenever men and women, whenever they excel in what they apply themselves to, because we do so for a vastly different reason than everyone else. We excel at work. We excel in our family. We excel in everything we set our mind to, not because of our innate goodness, not because of our skills, but because of the Lord, because we do as unto the Lord. So why are you good at your job? Because you do it as unto the Lord. Why are you good at whatever you set out to do that the Lord places you in? Because you do it as unto the Lord. And believers cannot, unbelievers cannot say that. They are not motivated by the same thing that motivates us. So whether it's business or arts or education or any other realm, we should excel at these things. For we do them as unto the Lord. Who else in the world besides true believers have a higher motivation to be successful? Because as we're successful, people don't see us, they see Christ. And so this idea of reconditioning, that this strategy, this tactic that Nebuchadnezzar had, it didn't work out. It didn't work out in the way that he intended. God used it in a different way. So his first step in assimilation was separation. His second step in assimilation was, uh, was reconditioning. And the third step in assimilation was provision. And this is where we see the pushback from. 
His third step in assimilation was provision. He wanted these youths to know that Babylon would provide and provide well. He says that in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now think about that for a moment. How do you think the king of Babylon's daily menu compared to their menu back in Judah? It was a lot different, right? We don't know exactly what the menu, uh, uh, how the contrast was, but we know that it was much better because ultimately we know the Babylonians, their hope was in food. Their hope was in wine. Their hope was, was on the menu. And we know that those of the Lord's, their hope was not in that. And so the king wanted, it wasn't just about food. He wanted them, he wanted to show them provision that he, that Babylon would take care of them. He insisted that they would eat his food and drink his wine. And for them, this was a big deal. Not only had they never had such food, but they knew that this is not what they should eat. There were two issues with taking the food of the king. Likely the food would have caused the boys to break so many of the dietary laws that they were raised to honor and raised to keep. And so they brought this food out. They had a choice. Do I, do I take the king's food? And do I, do I, do I, am I unfaithful to the Lord? Or do I, am I remain faithful to the Lord and face the consequences? And we'll see this next week. And as we said, taking the king's food and wine would be relying on the king and relying on Babylon for provision. And all those who are faithful to the Lord, both young and old, have the same choice to make. Do we follow God or do we follow man? Do we trust in the Lord or do we trust in others for our provision? Go with me uh, again to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Great passage, and I know so many struggle with anxiety and worry maybe more now than in the past few years as we just live in an anxiety-filled world there's always something to be nervous about there's always something to be worried about but jesus gives us great hope we'll just read this whole section here matthew 6 25 already kind of fast jesus says therefore i tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor weep nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, or the pagans, or the Babylonians, they seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And we're not going to unpack, uh, even get to verse 8 this morning and see what the response of Daniel and his three friends are. 
But they're at this crossroads. They're at this this point where they have to decide, what do we believe? Are we going to look to? Are we going to defile ourselves uh, with this this food and wine of the king? Are we going to trust the Lord? You can only imagine how much anxiety would have filled them. But it was their hope and trust in the Lord that led them to a different response. Where they rejected the provision of the king. And they trusted in their one true king. As faithful followers, we have the same choice to make today. Do we follow God? Do we trust God? Or do we follow man? And we make this choice on a daily basis. That we have two masters that we that are in front of us every day. And we cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. We cannot live in two kingdoms. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Either Christ is our king or we are our own king and it's only christ who can and will save so nebuchadnezzar's first step in assimilation was separation his second step was reconditioning his third step was in provision and then his fourth step in assimilation of bringing these these young hebrew boys into his kingdom and assimilating them into the culture of babylon was recognition or identity if you will so you go to the last part there. After he assigns them food, the drink educates them for three years. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king, which we see at the end of chapter 1. Among these, and here we're first introduced by name, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. And he does this ultimately because... Um, um, Oh, what's his name here? Abra, I can't even find him. Where is he at? There he is, Ashpenaz. Uh, the chief eunuch, he was, everything he did, he was doing so at the request and the command of the king, of the edict of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he gives them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. And so he changed or he he attempted to change their identity, to change what they were known as, to change what they would be referred to, and to change their identity. Because names are important, even more so then than now, even more so in the ancient Near East, in this context that we're speaking of. Names had carried much weight and meaning. And we're going to forego to some of your... uh, uh, dismay maybe we're going to forego a study of these names for one reason there is a good bit of debate on exactly what some of these names meant especially the babylonian names but there is little disagreement on what the root of both sets of these names were daniel and hananiah michelle and azariah all had meaning and root in god all had meaning and root in their identity as the people of God. They were connected to who the Lord was, even in their very name. And the names that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to change them to equally all had root and meaning in the names of their false gods. And so their identity was going from trusting and being identified with the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to being identified and connected to these false gods, many, many false gods of Babylon. 
This was a major shift, having your name changed. And imagine being Daniel and Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, having these names changed. And every time you came into the king's court these next three years and you heard Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar, imagine every time you heard that, you were reminded. Every time someone called you that, you were reminded that you were not in your home. That you are not in your kingdom. This was not where you were meant to be. This was not your name. So there was a major shift here. Every time they heard their name, it reminded them of this new reality that they found themselves in. Their new names reminded them of where they were and the vast difference of where they had come from. But yet, they didn't reject this, so it seems. They didn't fight these new names. Daniel, even after chapter 1 here, begins to call them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that is what we know them as from childhood. If I said, do you remember the story of Hananiah and, um, I can't even call them right now, Michelle and Azariah? No, I, I don't recall that story. Oh, you mean Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, I remember that. Great story. So Daniel begins using these names. They don't reject even this change in identity because their identity was not bound up in their name. And these men knew that. These young boys knew that. They knew that who they were was not wrapped up in a name, but they knew who they were was wrapped up in God himself and the Lord that they served and the faith that they had in ultimately the Messiah and the redeeming arm of the Lord, that's where their trust was. They knew their identity was not bound in a name. They belonged to the Lord. Identity was such an important thing then and it is now as well. Who are we? Are we defined by our name? I hope not, right? There's some goofy names nowadays. We've shifted from that, right? A lot of times we use what sounds good. We know even today we're not identified by our names. But who are we? If we're not defined by our name, are we defined by our occupation? Which is so easy, right? You meet somebody, what's one of the first things you ask? I did it this weekend, made a new guy on Friday. Hey, what do you do? That's what we do. It's our natural saying, what do we do? But we're not identified by our occupation. Are we identified by our kids? It's an easy thing to do. I think we have 476 kids here at North Hills. So easy to be identified by our kids. But we're not. We're not defined by our kids. We're not defined by our occupation. We're not defined by our past. We're not defined by our shortcomings. As believers, no, we're defined by none of these. We are defined and identified with Christ. We are what and who Jesus says we are. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. Philippians 3.20 says we are citizens of heaven. Ephesians 1 says we are chosen, adopted, and redeemed. Paul says in Corinthians 12.27 that we are the body of Christ. In Corinthians 1.2, it says we are sanctified saints. John 15.15 says we are a friend of Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says we are a child of God. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creation. So this is who we are. We're not defined by our shortcomings, our past, our failures. We're not defined by our sin. We're not defined by our kids. We're not defined by our occupation. We're not defined by our name. We're not defined by anything 
other than who Christ says we are if we are His. And if we are not His, then we are defined by our sin. We are sinners that like the people of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and Babylon and every sinner who has ever died without Christ, we are identified and defined as sinners who are under the wrath of God. But now we are sons and daughters of God. He doesn't even see us. He sees Christ in us. That is our identity. So who are we? We are Christ's. Not because of any work we've done, but because of the great exchange. He exchanged His life for ours. We are His and He is ours. Therefore, we will not be conformed to this world. Although, like Nebuchadnezzar, the world desires to assimilate us into its cultures and patterns today. And like Daniel and Hananiah and Michelle and Azariah, we stand and we have to either stand on our own strength and fail or we stand in the strength of the Spirit and we trust the Lord. So next week we'll see Daniel and his three amigos and how they respond to the king's edict. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this reminder in Daniel. I thank you, Lord, that although the the world around us desires to assimilate us into its culture, that we stand on the foundation of Christ. We stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are yours and you are ours. This morning, Lord, I pray that you will use this text in our life and help us to um, respond in faith and obedience to it. As we have a chance to, to give now, as we have a chance to sing, as we... Uh, have a chance to receive communion and be reminded of this new covenant. As we have a chance to leave this place, may we do so in faith and obedience to Christ. Have your way in these next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.